Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 29th, 2014. This is episode 1356 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I got a good one for you. I got Scott Jackson, Scott Jackson, no, Scott Jackson from the New Hampshire Outdoor Learning Center. It'll be on with me in just a moment. Want to go ahead, though, and uh, take care of our housekeeping as always first. Housekeeping item one is always let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. Uh, I believe silver and gold need to be part of your investment portfolio. I'm not a huckster like some people. I just had a long interaction with a listener about one of the types of the uh, silver and gold hucksters out there that basically say, you know, get rid of all your dirty, ill-gotten Federal Reserve notes and go to all metal right away. I think that's stupid. I do think there's some real uncertainty in our economy, and I think that that only gets worse over time. And I do think that the plan for the value of our money is to devalue it, and that is the plan. That is everybody's plan. That's the public plan, that money will become worth less over time. It's designed to work that way. That's what they call inflation. Inflation is not really the price of things going up. It is the value of money going down. It is planned into the system. That is how the Federal Reserve runs things. So I think it only makes sense in the event of a catastrophic failure that a safe haven for some of your money and your wealth would be gold and silver. And that over the long haul, gold and silver will be a place where your money retains its value. History has shown that to be true. And uh, I can think of no better place to buy my gold and silver from than JM Bullion. I just bought from them a whole bunch of the peace dollars I was yakking on about a few weeks back. I was going to tell you guys on the air there was a great deal. And, you know, these are a beautiful coin and, and, you know, real U.S. currency from a time when U.S. actually had real money and um, in, in very good condition. So there's a little numismatic value there as well. And it's something I'm just lacking in. So I was on their site the other day, and uh, I got those. There's also something very cool coming to Jam Bullion. Uh, I'll tell you more about it next week. But there was a shipwreck a long, long time ago during a world war. And a ship with tons of silver went to the bottom of the sea. That silver was recovered uh, just a few years ago. And that silver is now being made into a commemorative coin that you'll be able to get from J.M. Bullion. I think they're taking pre-orders on them right now. You can find it there if you look at it. But uh, I'm going to learn more about this and uh, give you guys a big fill-in on Monday next week because I'll be ordering some of those myself. It sounds like one of the coolest things I've ever heard. And silver has some stuff like that that's a cool factor, but in the end what you're buying is raw metal. Please remember that. And that metal has value. Same with gold. Um, I chose Jam Bullion from a plethora, a portfolio of potential sponsors because I could talk to the president and they were competitive with their pricing and they had an awesome uh, lineup of, of, of uh, product. That's why. There was plenty of other places that were competitive and had a good lineup of product, but... Uh, if I wanted to talk to somebody there, I talk to like some hack in marketing or something. That's not good enough for you guys. I talk to the top or I don't deal with a company. Uh, next up today, Western Botanicals. Um, Western Botanicals is like gold to me. They really are. Because if I need something that I can't grow or don't have growing here yet in sufficient quantity to harvest it for myself, they have it. If I need, there are certain things that just don't, you know, they're hard to process on your own as well. Echinacea would be one of those. Um, and I can get it from them. 
If it's herbal and it's legal and you can find it in the United States, you can get it from Western Botanicals. They're real people that really care about you. If you need uh, some help ordering or something like that, pick up the phone, give them a call and talk to them. Let them know you're from the Survival Podcast. They'll take good care of you. Again, like I always say about them, they're real people that really care about you. Um, herbals and supplements and all are another place that is uh, uh, just a landmine of hucksters. Not Western Botanicals. They won't tell you that they're going to cure your cancer or anything stupid like that, but they can help you with gentle, gentle natural alternatives to conventional medicine, both over-the-counter and prescription. Um, and they are awesome. And they are the best I could find, and that's why they're uh, here for you. They're also huge supporters of the show, offering you guys their premium membership program for free for the first year if you're a supporter of our member support brigade. That's a $50 membership, so your uh, one benefit from those guys alone pays for your MSB for the first year. On that note, consider joining the member support brigade. It's how you can support this show at 18.3 cents an episode, or even less than that if you are military law enforcement Peace Corps or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, that's active duty or prior service, either one, email me before you join the service discount in the subject line and give me one or two sentences on your service. Everybody else, it's still a great deal. It's a membership that pays for itself many times over. There's discounts there that are things that you're probably buying for your preparedness lifestyle anyway. Uh, there's a lot of great free ebooks for you. Actually, they're not free ebooks. They're free for you. Uh, but there's over $200 worth of ebooks you can download on day one. 50 bucks a year, 5 bucks a month, and... It's just a great benefit. Uh, one of those benefits being that we are about to open the second round of sales to the Perma Ethos PDC. That will be open on Saturday at 8 a.m. The first thousand positions sold out in two hours and 47 minutes. Um, with the Founders Program, we've published all the information on how we're doing the second round. We're not changing it. Um, but only uh, members of the MSB and, and members of Breek of Freedom's premium membership will be having access to this second round of sales. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's another benefit in itself. I do want to say one thing. I keep getting questions. Will we do a payment program for people buying the second round of, uh, of the class like we did for the first round of the class? Yes, we will. I think it's going to be four by 135 is going to be the payment option on there. Four by 135 bucks, uh, which comes out, I think, 540. So it's 40 bucks over what everybody else would pay, but you get the payment plan. Uh, I would like to say this. If you have any questions about Permaethos, we're trying to give Permaethos its own identification. Uh, I'll tell you, hey, there's new stuff going on over there, but it's over there, uh, just on the web anyway, at permaethos.com. If you have a question about Permaethos at all, anything about Permaethos, please go to permaethos.com, click on, click on questions, and submit your question there so we can answer it for everybody. And so it's at Permaethos, not Survival Podcast. I've made a commitment to you guys that TSP will not become the Permaethos infomercial channel, and it's not going to be. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and do our history segment. The year is 1356. 1356. And uh, Alex Shrugged, who always does these great history segments for us at TSP Wiki, the Survival Wiki, where you can go over there and learn a lot about history and survivalism and preparedness and permaculture and sustainable living and you name it you can learn about it. it is the online encyclopedia of preparedness and you can contribute if you'd like to contribute just go to tspwiki.com and you'll see how to sign up there's a training center and everything or just look around and if you look at the history segment today you will see three great headlines the black prince checkmates the king the lioness of Brittany settles down and dance of the savages as cool as Dance of the Savages sounds, I'm going to read the first one for you. The Black Prince checkmates the king. 8,000 men led by the Black Prince Edward head north from Bordeaux. Black Prince is the uh, Prince of England, by the way, guys. 16,000 French soldiers are mustered in haste, but the army lacks unit cohesion. 
Nevertheless, with twice as many troops, how could they lose? At the Battle of Floatlers, unit cohesion is a factor when King John the Good of France is captured in battle. In time, he will be traded for hostages. But when one of the hostages escapes the king's parole, and honor demand that he return to his English captors. King John will die in captivity. His son, Charles the Wise, is the heir apparent, will rule as king. But he will be none too wise, as first demonstrated at the Dance of the Savages, where he's almost burned to death in a foolish stunt. Um, here's my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us. Historians and strategists have puzzled over how the Black Prince won the battle, but the fatal flaw was the King of France was convinced by the clergy to observe Sunday the truce of God and gave Prince Edward time to dig in and plan his defense. In an ancient war between the Assyrian Greeks and the Maccabees, Some Jewish fighters refused to fight on the Sabbath. They died. Those who did fight on the Sabbath lived. The military became exempt from the Sabbath laws while on duty, and they may carry a sword at all times. The rules are made by the winners. Interesting take. Here's my take. Number one, you notice this is like King John the Good. I just, I, I, you know, Pope Innocent the 17 millionth or whatever. These guys all give themselves names. Uh, to try and reinforce probably we're the weakest. I think the only guy that's honest about who he is here is the Black Prince. Because he's a pretty dark guy. I first heard of the Black Prince on a, a movie. That movie was called A Knight's Tale. It's one of my favorite movies, even though it's kind of quirky and you know puts modern rock and roll back into medieval times and stuff like that. Because I love the message, a man could change his stars. But there's a character in there called the Black Prince. And uh, when I first saw that movie, I thought it was just... Yeah, you should make crap up, put it in a movie like this. The rest of the movie's made up. But no, the Black Prince is a real dude, and uh, he seems like he's badass on the battlefield. Completely vicious, and gee, he wins. And this is a place where we have to be really honest with ourselves about warfare and battle. Generally speaking, the people that are the most ruthless in battle win. But on the other side of it, if there is no honor in battle... If the the words of commanders and leaders on either side during talks and negotiations don't mean anything, then how can there be any end to battle and warfare until one side simply kills the other? And how can there be any control? Wars are something that happens. I find it interesting that King John was good enough, you know, along with his name, King John the Good, that when one of his parole exchange prisoners escaped, he went back and said, here I am. That's an interesting thing. You would think that he probably would have just said, really? Well, one of our guys, got we gave them X number of prisoners and they one left? Well, he sucks. Let's put out a call to have his head chopped off and let's send them another one of my minions. And he didn't. This is something about the way warfare was conducted. But this actually has me thinking about something totally different, and it's why I decided to pick this one today. World War I, World War II. Recently I published on the TSP uh, Facebook page some photos of battlefields from World War I that still bear the scars of the war. and It's pretty haunting stuff and pretty haunting stories that go with them. This is a hundred years ago now, some of these battles. And... Uh, You know, we just had Memorial Day and rah, rah, wave the flag, troops this, troops that, especially from people that have never been one of the troops and think that supporting the troops means waving the flag and cooking a barbecue on a Monday instead of going to work. 
um, and don't understand the sacrifices that are made. And that's one thing. But one of the comments is what really struck me, and it's something we need to examine on a show one day, and that's war-torn Europe and the survival lessons of World War One, World War Two, and the Balkan Wars. And we've talked a little bit about the Balkan Wars, not for the military but for the civilians. Um, one of the guys said, it's amazing to me that neocons call the French cowards because they apparently have no stomach for war, and that's easy to say when the war didn't happen in your backyard. And to me, I think that if we look at warfare, you notice the people that will do the most to avoid war are the ones that have actually experienced it. And it's something to temper our patriotism and our attitudes with to understand that we don't really know what war is in this country. Our troops do. I'm not talking about our troops, but we don't. The people that you know rally to one side or ever uh, the other of the cause, and all of a sudden this war's good because their guy's in charge, and then this war's bad because their guy's not in charge, and and whatever. Um, support support every war blindly, or just don't support any action at all. Don't have any idea what war is in this country. Realize that no living human being has ever seen American blood shed in actual war. Not terrorist attacks, actual war. Two armies doing battle on our soil. No living human being has ever witnessed war on the soil of the United States of America's homeland, ever. We've really had three real wars, real wars, on American soil as Americans. You know, there is a war with Mexico between Texas, but Texas wasn't part of the Union yet, so that doesn't really count. What you have is the American Revolution. Let's face it, I don't think any of us were around for that. And that was a revolutionary war. It's a different type of war than, you know, two nations battling it out, uh, attacking each other directly. And then we had a war kind of like that in our infancy, the War of 1812. That was fought on U.S. soil. The United States and the British. So twice we did battle with the British, and twice, frankly, we handed them their asses. Well, there was only one other time that we really spilled blood on this on this land. That was the war between the states. And if I check my history calendar, I think that ended in 1865. And I'll tell you what, after that, there's you know the Indian Wars and all, but that's basically us breaking our word and going around and killing people. And there was nothing like World War One or World War Two or Vietnam conflict or the Korean conflict. Those were both wars, by the way, whether you want to call them conflicts or not. Um, our nation wasn't bombed into oblivion the way Japan was during World War II. If you notice, the, the nations that have the least taste for war today are the ones that had the most bombs dropped on them during a war, specifically that still have human beings that live there who actually witnessed, saw, and dealt with war. And I think in many ways... As modern civilized human beings, we need to rethink the concept of war in the first place. Just some thoughts for you today that blend with the history of warfare in Europe. And please, the next time you're going to wave the flag and rah, 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 and yeah, that's what we need to do, and screw them and we'll kick their ass, please think about the fact that a lot of people make a big deal out of the concept of God bless America. I don't share a lot of your religious beliefs with many of the audience anyway, but I, uh, I, I do believe in God. I am what you call a deist. 
And I do believe that there are things that we are blessed with, whether they're directly from God or not. They're part of God's creation. Therefore, God has blessed America. And the biggest way God blessed America in the past 150 years has been with two giant oceans that have buffered us from many of the conflicts of the rest of the world. That's something we don't think about very often when we talk about how great we are and wave the big foam finger that says we're number one on it. The reason this country wasn't bombed and mortared in those two wars is because of those oceans, not because we're better than other people. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, we're going to talk today with uh, Scott Jackson, who is uh, a really cool guy. He's got a great school going on up in New Hampshire. He's also a registered guide in Maine and a guide in uh, New Hampshire as well. And with that, hey, Scott, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for having us on. We really appreciate it. So if you could start out so the audience can kind of get to know who you are and what you're all about, can you tell us uh, what you're doing now and uh, how you got into what you're doing now? I know you're into outdoors and uh, and hunting and fishing, and you've been a guide, uh, but now you've kind of moved on to another level with that. Could you kind of tell us about the uh, the path you took through life to end up here? Sure, sure. We uh, <clears throat> Well, ever since I was a kid, I've always, I'd always wanted to move to Alaska, and uh, as I as I did my research, I realized that aviation was the was the pathway to uh, a career in Alaska, the last frontier, and all that. A lot of it is related to the hunting and fishing side, which I really enjoy. Uh, so went to college for uh, for aviation, aviation maintenance, and, and uh, became a commercial pilot. Uh, moved up there in 1994, and uh, began working on airplanes and flying the bush, uh, which really opened my eyes to the guiding side of things, uh, taking hunters and fishermen back into the backcountry and uh, working with them on extracting their, their big game animals and so forth. I uh, spent 10 years up there working uh, down on the Kenai Peninsula. Uh, we still actually have our home up in Alaska, which is nice. We get to go back once in a while. And uh, yeah, along about 10, about 10 years into it, we... Uh, decided with family and we had a couple of new kids that we wanted to head back to New England and, uh, just be closer to, closer to our relatives and our grandparents and so forth. So we moved back here in 2004. Then, uh, as things went on, we, uh, got into the, again, into the outdoors here in, in New England and picked up the Maine guides license as well as the New Hampshire guides license. Uh, and in the process of guiding folks in Maine and New Hampshire, we realized that people hire guides because they don't really know what they're doing. A lot of new folks to the outdoors uh, really wanted to hire a guide for no other reason than to learn how to hunt and how to fish. And I thought, as one day while I was guiding and the guy was asking me a few questions about deer hunting, it dawned on me that if we could put this in a group setting, uh, and make a business out of this, we could probably at attract a fairly large uh, audience, if you will, of folks who want to learn how to hunt and fish or take their current skills to a new level. So having a passion for education, uh, my wife and I both, uh, you know, we love the learning process, we love to learn new things, and we love to teach. So we started a company called the New Hampshire Outdoor Learning Center. Uh, spent probably close to a year writing the curriculum for the guide school 
and the Master Outdoorsman Program, a certified Master Outdoorsman Program. And now we're up to uh, over 20 different courses, uh, both on an advanced level and a beginner's level. So we're having some fun. Now we've got uh, close to 350 students that have come through in the last two years and uh, really enjoying enjoying teaching folks uh, new new skills. So that's pretty much how we got here. So um, I'm on your site right now. Are your classes primarily like person-to-person, face-to-face classes, or do you do remote learning as well? Uh, today it's just person-to-person. The classes are, are generally limited somewhere between 12 and 15 students, okay. uh, a lot of one-on-one instruction with, uh, you know, giving that it is a hands-on skill set. Most of the classes are hands-on. We, uh, we keep the classes fairly small. Very cool. So what kind of classes do you offer? I mean, are you primarily just for the beginner or do it, you know, people that have been hunting their whole life have like advanced options and things like that as well with you guys? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Uh, several of our classes, we spend, say, the morning uh, session in kind of a beginning, you know, bringing everybody up to the same level. And then we move into more advanced knowledge in, in the afternoon. Uh, the archery class, for instance, is split into two weekends. So we have the beginning archery class, which is kind of your genesis bows, uh, bag targets kind of thing, uh, working on your form. That's one Saturday. The very following Saturday is more of an advanced archery class where we shoot from tree stands, ground blinds, spot and stock, and it's all 3D targets. So I think to answer your question, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, we, we have some classes that are very beginner oriented and other classes that do migrate into more of an advanced skill level. Interesting. It's a really cool thing you're doing because I hear from people all the time that are like, how do I get started with hunting and fishing? And and frankly, getting started with fishing to me is easier. There's longer seasons. It's 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 pretty it's less intimidating, I guess is maybe the the the, the way I would put it. There's more um, open opportunity. I know where you are in the Northeast, because I'm originally from the Northeast myself. There's a lot of public land for hunting, but there's still nowhere near the access to hunting land that there is to uh, public fishing opportunities. And and hunting seems to be a very intimidating thing for people to take on, you know, the first time on their own. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. The um you know, for one thing, all of the water up here is, is pretty much open access. So you're, you know, it's owned by the state. So there's not really any limitations on whether or not you can fish a certain body of water. Uh, hunting, on the other hand, you know, you have a lot of private land. And you know, I, I will tell you, in the guide service end of things, one of the reasons we are hired by folks from out of state is that they don't understand the rules and regulations around hunting, particularly in regards to uh, where they can hunt legally and what kind of permissions they need. So um, I would agree that fishing is certainly an easier uh, or less challenging sport. Uh, of course, it depends on the species you're you're going after, but sure. it's definitely less less challenging uh, technically than hunting is for sure. Well, and I think another reason people might hire a guide. So uh, you you get you have a guide license in in Maine as well as New Hampshire. Is that what you said? That's correct, yeah. So when I used to live in Pennsylvania, I would, and I don't know how hard it is today versus back then, but I would every year apply 
for the lottery for a permit for a moose in Maine because um, it was just an opportunity that was not available to me in Pennsylvania. Now, of course, the majority of the permits, as they should be, are issued to Maine residents. So it's a lottery, and your odds of drawing a permit are long. I think they get a little bit better every year. That said, had I drawn a permit, um, and I get a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go up to Maine and hunt for a moose, um, I was pretty dead set on I would hire a guide because it would increase my chance of success in an area where I don't not just know maybe all of your intricacies of land and, and what have you, but where is the access? Where where can I hunt? Where is are my odds the highest? Um, especially when you get into certain things with high you know high uh, high value. Uh, animals, uh, uh, you know, and access to not just public but private lands and things like that. No, you're you're exactly right. And if you hire a guide that knows the area, uh, you know, the odds of your success, you know, go up exponentially. Not only that, they the guides generally provide the equipment. Uh, they know what the lodging situation is. You know, where in most cases they will give you a full, you know, full fully outfitted you know, program where they're providing everything for you. Uh, I would say that's, that's other than the knowledge uh, of the species and the area, uh, we are time savers. You know, mm-hmm. guides save folks the time and the investment in doing the homework uh, and in exchange for dollars. So it's it's not a bad deal. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to go up to uh, Wyoming this year to uh, hunt antelope, and I'll probably do that alone because I've done it before. But otherwise, you just kind of show up and go, "Okay, here's Wyoming. Where's an antelope?" I mean, it's it it, it is definitely helpful. I've even found with fishing too, especially on lakes, hiring a guide a couple times on a lake, you learn a lot about the area and the lake. That said, I've got a lot of females in my audience. When I started this show six years ago, I had no idea that I would end up with a demographic that's probably about 35% female. I'm happy about it, just surprised. Um, And I hear from a lot of women that want to go hunting and fishing and don't have someone to teach them. Um, Are your classes, you know, female friendly or is it like, you know, I just think of the Northeast, right? I remember the deer camps, right? Like that I went to with my uncles and stuff when I was a kid. And it, it was a very male dominated environment. It's, you know, that's it's interesting that you said 35%. That is, to the letter, to the number, what our female demographic is in really? the majority of our classes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, now, now, we've recently opened uh, the Women's Outdoor Series. And so we have a series of classes dedicated particularly to women. Uh, and those are a lot of fun. I mean, the women, they, they network differently with other students in the class. Uh, they learn differently, and they they really are exceptional outdoors folks, you know. And they love the training side of things. They love the education, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of husbands send their wives because it's difficult for a husband to to teach a wife, you know, things about the outdoors. And it's it's just nice to have a place to send your spouse where they can learn, you know, hunting, fishing, archery, firearms, uh, you know, edible plants, mushrooms, the whole thing. Yeah, I've always found it difficult, especially anything firearms related, to teach my wife. Because when I'm acting as an instructor and I correct somebody's form, that's how they take it. When I'm acting as an instructor and correct my wife's form with a rifle, I'm saying, you're wrong. That's just the dynamic that plays out between spouses, it seems like. Yeah, yeah you're, you're right on. It's uh, 
it's easier to be trained by somebody you don't know that's an expert in the field than it is to, you know, to, to have to go home with that person, I guess, after you've tried to teach them and, and all the frustrations that are associated sometimes with that. Yeah, my, I have a sponsor uh, uh, that does firearms training for self-defense, uh, Fortress Defense Consultants, uh, Frank Sharp. And he said when a man and woman come to one of his classes together, He's like, I'm so glad you guys came together. That's great. It's a great bonding experience. Okay, now you're going to go on that side of the room, and you're going on that side of the room. And he separates them on the firing line, in the classroom, through the whole duration of the class. They're just pu- pulled away from each other so they can both experience the learning individually. And, and I think there's a dynamic there that um, I think sometimes we, we deny it because we think it shouldn't be. But it is there, and we acknowledge it. I think people get a better learning experience, like you're saying, from – Someone that they've just simply said, okay, I know this person who knows more than me, and that's okay. Right, exactly. We, we that's what you're paying women, for, right? What's that? And that's what you're paying for. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, we find that the women are a lot more open to asking the instructors questions. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the guys will, will come to class, and it's very quiet. You know, you might get one or two folks that ask you, you know, some good questions. Women are very, very open with, with things that they might not understand that you've just gone through. Uh, you know, we have a very high-end, advanced uh, map and compass course, wilderness, or, you know, navigation, orienteering. And, you know, if you miss a certain piece of that, it can cascade away from you. Uh, and it's 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 really interesting to see how the two, you know, the two different genders learn uh, complex, you know, map and compass type courses. Not to beat up on my own gender too much, but in general, I'd rather teach a woman. They usually listen better and are more open with telling you, I don't understand. No, that's, that's right. I think they're, um, they're less likely to question, you know, somebody who is an expert in the field, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that, that their minds are more open to, you know, if, if, this is, if this information is correct, then we'll take it as correct, rather than, than why did that, you know, why is it that latitude and longitude is so, you know, minutes, degrees, and seconds? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, so you have a program called the Master Outdoorsman Program. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Master Outdoorsman Program, is, it's a very, very intense learning uh, program. It consists of 18 classes, uh, everything from edible plants and mushrooms, firearms, archery, uh, open water fishing, ice fishing, deer hunting, I mean, on and on and on. Uh, and we designed this to be a very in-depth, deep-dive uh, learning process so that when you achieve the final uh, certification, you know, you you are all things outdoors knowledgeable. Again, a lot of hands-on. This is very useful information. It's not just uh, textbook stuff. Probably 90% of the classes begin in the classroom in the morning and end up out in the field. So <clears throat> it takes about a year and a half get through all 18 classes, running about one a month. Depending on your schedule, you can go faster if you like, or you can take more time if you like. Uh, but at the very end, you'll have taken 18 written tests as the classes progress. And then there's a final written exam and a final oral board exam from the certified, uh, the Board of Certified Master Outdoorsmen. It takes a full day to test on the final. And, uh, Essentially, evaluating your skill sets and your knowledge uh, that you've you've had over the past 
18 months. And just so I'm clear on that, that, that final is a third-party test, then that's not something you administer? No, we administer it here. Okay. Uh, we bring we bring several of the instructors back in. They they make up the board. Okay. And we we test you on each of the eighteen categories, eighteen eighteen classes, and then you walk out with your certified master outdoorsman patch and your certificate. And what does that do for a person other than the obvious thing that they get the knowledge? Is there a, is there some sort of a professional value to that, or is it recognized or? We've we've worked. Um, it's not part of the fish and game department here officially, but they have looked at our curriculum and they've they've looked at the program. They're very excited that there is a program like this in place. I would say on a commercial level, uh, many of the folks that have come through our guide school, both the Maine guide school and the New Hampshire guide school, uh, have come back to take these courses as sort of a another feather in their cap, a marketing angle, if you will, that they're not just a New Hampshire licensed guide or just a registered main guide. They're also a certified master outdoorsman. So it's built as a, the brand has built up over, over the past several years as essentially the benchmark in New England anyway of outdoor knowledge over and above the guide's license. I'm just looking at some of the photographs from things like the plant trees and mushrooms course and all, and I'm telling you, if I were there locally, it, it, it's something I would probably come do myself. Even though I do know a lot of this stuff already, it looks like not just a great learning experience, but a great uh, recreational experience. It looks like people really learn, and there's probably a lot of bonding that goes on and a lot of after-class you know, kind of networking that are developed uh, with people working together and cooperating with each other. You know, we we hear from students uh, daily about their different successes in the field, and uh, they do. They come together, you know, outside of class, harvesting mushrooms. Uh, I would say mushrooms is one of our most popular classes. It seems to be gaining a lot of momentum, and there's several choice edibles in New Hampshire that do not have, uh, you know, poisonous lookalikes. Anyway, we've heard of folks two, three, four getting together that came to the class together, now they're out in the field uh, and just having a great time, you know, having made new friends, but all sharing the same passion for a particular topic. What, what's your most popular course and why do you think it is? I would have to say it's, it's a toss-up right now between the mushrooms class, the uh, big game meat processing or butchering class, and the map and compass. Hmm. Those three courses... Once the marketing goes out, they seem to fill up almost instantly. And I think obviously for various reasons, uh, you know, hunters trying to get back into the backcountry, it's a little intimidating not understanding navigation and orienteering and topple maps. Uh, those folks have really come in and, and grabbed onto, you know, true old-fashioned map and compass topple reading. Uh, yeah, I mushrooms. think... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the mushroom class really is a broad, broad demographic. Everyone from the survivalist folks, uh, and now we're seeing a lot more natural, you know, self-sufficiency kind of thought processes in the market. Mm -hmm. And folks are just really interested in edible plants and mushrooms. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I the mushroom class, I'm sitting here looking at a big old uh, ram's head and thinking, yeah, I'd come just so that we might eat some of that um but uh the uh the game processing doesn't surprise me at all either uh it's one of the things that i find 
a lot of people go out and they get all their gear and they find a place they can hunt. And if they don't have a guide or something right towards, you know, a week before they're finally going to go, they kind of go, okay, if I do shoot a deer, you know, you shoot a rabbit or a a dove or something. It's not that complex to figure out, but when you're sitting here with an animal that's a couple hundred pounds or a larger animal, like a bear or a mule deer or a, a, you know, an elk, um, it's kind of intimidating for the person like, okay, well, what do I do with it now? You know, that's, that's one of the things. The, the other side of the butchering or meat processing class, what we found is, um, you know, wanting to take care of the animal yourself, but understanding where the different cuts come from. Now, a lot of folks mm-hmm. do butcher their own animals, but it's not, uh, it's not pretty, if you know what I mean. So yeah. they don't have, say, the, you know, the, the sirloin and the, you know, tender, the, um, uh, London broils and all of the technical information that you see in the store. And I always wonder, where does that come from? What piece of the animal does all that come from? And now that I hunt and I'm successful, I'd really like to take care of my own meat, jerky and sausage, and we get the smoker running and we do all those things. And uh, and it's it definitely is. It's one of the most enjoyable classes that we have. Do you guys cover much on field care? Because, I mean, that was the one that got me. So I grew up hunting deer. And, uh, you know, you got the deer in the field, field dress the deer, throw a rope on it, drag it out, carry a rope so you can do that. And, you know, I went hunting uh, antelope a couple times and was successful with that. And most of the places you shoot an antelope in Wyoming, you can drive to it and throw it in the back. And then I got this idea, a wild hair on my ass one day, that I was going to go elk hunting, and I actually managed to shoot an elk. It was a, it was a young uh, bull. It wasn't a big elk, but it was big. And then I went, well, this is, and I ended up having to quarter it. And I, I mean, I knew what to do to get it out, but it was kind of like, wow, I really didn't think about all the logistics in this because I took for granted, and, and you guys have, you know, like I said, in Maine, moose and bear, you're talking about a lot more mass of an animal to get out. When my uncle shot a bear one time. We ended up using a come along to winch it up the side of the hill and get it to where the vehicle could be. Um, there's things that go on with big game as far as extraction from the field and proper meat care during that time that are not really a big deal with smaller animals. No, that's that's right. It's a very, um, you know, you know, really the quality of the meat does depend on, you know, first of all, shot placement. And a lot of folks don't think about that. They think, well, okay, the animal's down. Now what do we do? You know, if an animal is not shot properly it begins the deterioration, you know, a lot sooner. And then, of course, if it's not handled well while it's in the field, it's not cooled properly and, and, and or quartered and taken out, uh, yeah, the, the the quality of the meat starts to, to go downhill. One of my favorite, I guess, um, stories that's told over and over is, you know, folks who tell me that they don't like bear meat. Oh, <laughs> I, I tried it. It's really horrible. You know, it was nasty, and you know, I didn't. So, so I don't hunt bear. Well, when you drill down on the reason, you find out that the guy drove around with this bear in the back of his pickup truck, showing all of his friends for six or seven hours. <laughs> you know, with the sun shining on it, and the fat rendered into the meat, which yeah. which gave it a very very strong flavor. So anybody who's taken proper care of a bear knows that bear meat is exceptional is exceptional table fare. Uh but it does depend on quick processing and getting it out of the sun 
into a cooler and, of course, aging it properly. And in, in, uh, you, you guys shot in New Hampshire and Maine. In Pennsylvania, when we shot a bear, we had to take it to a check station, uh, and it had to go in one piece. And that added time to that very thing, and it was a, a concern. Do you guys have that hurdle where you're at, or, or no? No, most of the most of the animals, uh, the big game animals, especially in the North Country, can be taken out in quarters. Okay. Uh, you do have to present certain parts of the deer or bear or moose uh, for, you know, for tagging. Okay. So, it's yeah, it's not a big deal here, but the fishing game understands both in Maine and New Hampshire that on occasion, uh, you know, you really could not extract an animal by yourself, so they, they allow the quartering. Yeah, that, that's that's great because, I mean, a big black bear might be 400 pounds or more, and it is a difficult exactly. – it's like a bullet. They don't look as big as they are either when they're folded up, and they're like trying to move jelly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. They, they really are. So um, are you the only instructor, or do you bring in other topic specialists? I do a lot of stuff here, and some courses I teach myself, and some I bring somebody in that I know can do a better job than, than I can on a particular uh, course, and some I bring in assist instructors and we teach together. Is that the approach you take? Yeah, we we look uh, you know far and wide for the most qualified instructors we can find. Uh, so right now we're at thirteen. I think we're bringing on number fourteen instructors, uh, and these are all experts in their fields. Uh, they're guys that are either, you know, currently guiding for a particular species and really understand that species, or, for instance, we have a PhD, uh, Dr. Rick Vanderpool, who is our mycologist, mushrooms and animal plants guy, is very, very well known in the area. Uh, we have a staff biologist, a New Hampshire licensed biologist, and uh, we brought in uh, Martelli and Sandy Turcott. They're running our women's outdoor series both very, very experienced in the world of uh, survival techniques and bushcraft. So we're very excited to have those folks on board and uh, just continue to build. Uh, Denny Corvo is a, a regionally well, well-known uh, wild game chef. He's agreed to come on and teach a wild game cooking class in September. And uh, again, anytime we can find top talent, we, we bring them in for our classes. Very cool. I, I think it, it's a great idea. Some people do try to do everything on their own, and none of us can be the best at everything, no matter how we are, how good we are at certain things. That, that's correct. And, and you know, the, for me, this is this is a business. You know, it's something that I really enjoy doing. I do I do love to teach, uh, but at the end of the day, if I have to teach, you know, all of these classes, then you know the, the family time starts to go out the door. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a big benefit for us as a family to bring in folks who are experts that can uh, take these classes and run while we, you know, while we go fishing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, what do you think the biggest benefit might be to the average hunter or, or fisherman uh, that, that kind of sort of knows what they're doing, um, but decides, hey, this might be cool. I don't want to be a master outdoorsman or whatever, but I want to take a few courses. What would be some of the biggest benefits they might experience? Well, the first thing you know, I think our first objective when we when we have a student that's already that already has some experiences is, is to I guess increase their success in the field. Uh, kind of a, a side benefit is for us to expand 
their horizons uh, in the outdoor world. So, for instance, we have folks who are exceptional deer hunters. Uh, they come to the deer hunting class. They understand the rut system. They run, understand it, and they've done very, very well. And we introduce them to uh, to turkey hunting. Hmm. And they leave the turkey class, and we get the call, you know, four or five days into the season that they just shot their first, you know, their first turkey, and they just are so excited. They now have something else that they love to do in the spring, right? Deer hunting's well over. Yep. And uh, they've been introduced to a new a new side of the outdoors. Um, a lot of our deer hunters that come through the meat cutting process, meat processing class, have come back and taken our mushrooms class. And they, you know, their comments are nothing tastes better than, you know, a chicken of the woods next to one of my deer steaks. And so, they're, you know, we're expanding their horizons and also what we hope giving them a little bit more of an edge and making them more successful in the woods and on the waters. Yeah, I think the turkey thing is something that I don't know that people get how how much fun and how exciting turkey hunting is. And I, I blame the Outdoor Channel for it. And, and you yeah. want to know why? It's because every turkey hunt that you're going to film is going to look the same way. Two guys sitting by a tree. One guy gives out a couple of yelps. The gobbler comes in. That's it. Um, that does not really convey what it's like to be out to try to locate a bird uh, try to maybe get a gobbler to gobble off the roost, set up, start calling, get that bird to come in. How many freaking things can go wrong? A turkey's eyes uh, are on par with any eagle's, as you probably well know. Uh, one mistake, and, and the bird's gone. Um, there's so many things that can go wrong during that, and your heart's in your throat the whole time. And, I, again, I don't think that the Outdoor Channel or any of these other stations can really convey that to the person that's never got out in the woods and pursued turkeys because it's a totally, totally different experience than I think one gets from watching a video of it. You know, the, the, the interesting thing with turkeys, and, of course, you know, turkeys were extirpated here quite a while back and then reintroduced, you know, in the 70s. And... When you tell somebody, the average person that you are, that you're going turkey hunting, their comment is, well, how hard can that be? Turkeys are everywhere. <laughs> you know, I've got turkeys underneath my, my bird feeder and I've got turkeys across the road in the field. And, you know, why would you want to hunt something like that? I mean, how hard can it be? Well, when you take them out in, at the crack of dawn and you, you know, you put them in a ground blind and they're gobbling in the trees and, you know, and, you know, they fly down from the roost, and then you realize, wow, that this this is a pretty smart bird, and he's not just going to run over here and let you shoot him. Hmm. You know, you're you're doing the run and gun, you're you're doing the putt, the yelp, you're you know, you're really having to perfect, you know, that your concealment with camouflage and lack of movement. I mean, it's it is one of the most amazing challenges, uh, I think, maybe aside from the white-tailed deer. Uh, you know, turkey hunting is. Yeah, it, it, and I think that people that say stuff like that, well, the difference between hunting a turkey in the wild versus the turkey that's decided to hang out in the suburbs is the difference between hunting the gray squirrel in the wild versus the one in the park that's fed peanuts by by people who are bored. It's uh, it's not the same animal. I mean. You can get a bear condition to the point where it'll eat out of somebody's hand if it doesn't decide to eat their hand off. Uh, but that bear in the woods is often 
more difficult to to find than a deer, even if the population were similar and they're not, because the the, the frankly bears as much as they will barrel through sometimes and make a lot of noise when they want to can move quieter because they have padded feet. I think that a lot of people that see animals um, in these semi-wild states, these uh, adaptive states, don't have an understanding of how that animal is in a truly wholly, fully wild state where it knows that it is um, both predator and prey. You know, both on the school side, the uh, the outdoor learning side, and the guide service side, uh, to your point, the comment that comes back year after year from our bear hunters is, I was sitting in my stand, I could hear a pin drop, and I looked underneath my stand and the bear was standing there. No one really understands how a bear, which is anywhere from 180 pounds to, to 450 pounds, can walk on dry leaves and, and, and be almost undetectable to the human ear. It is absolutely phenomenal. I've shot several bears myself, and I'll tell you, they surprise me every time. I, I look at the bait barrel one minute, and there's nothing there. I look at the bait barrel the next minute, and there's a bear standing there. It's uh, it's really something how how well designed, you know, a black bear is for moving through the woods in a stealth-like manner. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the case with so many animals that we're we're accustomed to seeing in these kind of like I said, hybrid wild states. Is the is the squirrel in the park wild? Well, it's not tame. You know, actually, I've seen some that pretty much are, but most of them aren't. But it doesn't act like the animal that flattens itself against a tree and, and, and moves slowly around to avoid detection uh, up in the middle of the mountain. And there's so much of that that people don't get in turkeys, I think. Because I, I don't know about you, but I remember in the 80s um, hunting turkeys in the Northeast, and there weren't a lot of turkeys. There weren't turkeys in people's backyards and things like that back then. The, the, I think the conservation efforts have really paid off, and that's good for us, but it also creates an improper perception of what the other side of life is really like, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. The, the, uh, you know, a turkey is a prime example of you know, a success story from a reintroduction point of view. But you have to ask yourself, how did the turkeys come back so quickly? And the fact that they, they live in, in, in flocks where there's literally dozens of eyeballs all looking for the same thing, you know, predators. Uh, you know, they roost in trees. We, we have a lot of coyotes here in the Northeast. And it is very, very difficult for a coyote to put a sneak on the turkeys. There's just too many eyes looking and too many ways for them to get out, to get away from a predator. Um, you know, they're ground nesters. You know, the, the fact that the raccoons could eat all their eggs. They've got a way of doing it where the predators uh, have not been successful and they've come booming back. And we now have a really an amazing sport in turkey hunting that's that's hatched here in in New Hampshire and Maine. So, um, if somebody wanted to take your class, do they need to be your classes? I should say, do they already need like all their own equipment to participate? Do you guys provide any of that in in your classes? No, most of the classes that we have, uh, we provide all of the equipment for you. So I know our firearms class, fly fishing, archery, all of those we provide the equipment. Uh, and that really keeps the learning 
side of things, you know, very even keel. So folks are all learning with the same equipment. Now, if you, uh, in most cases, if you'd like to bring your own equipment, we're certainly happy to, happy to look at it and, and work with you, uh, with your own equipment. But we, we do provide it as mostly as a, as a cost savings mechanism for people that are, are new to the sport. And, uh, it just seems to work out better that the school provides the equipment for you. Well, I think it makes sure that you know that the student's going to be outfitted with what they need for the course as you're going to teach it. And the other thing it does is it lets the person that's brand new, before they go out and spend a ton of money, because you can, on gear, is this really right for me? Or what area, you know, I might come take two or three classes from you and decide, well, out of all the stuff I've experienced now, these are the two or three things out of everything that I really want to focus on at first. The, um, yeah, I mean, particularly in the hunting side of things, you know, you can put together quite a bit of, you know, quite a bit of an expense if you're, if you're, you know, entering into a new sport. So, you know, for instance, for turkeys, you've got a certain kind of shotgun that works well with a certain kind of shot. You've got ground blinds, uh, particularly if there's going to be kids involved. You've got decoys. You've got a whole set of camouflage clothes. You've got calls. There's a lot of things that go along with just the sport of turkey hunting. And, you know, if, if it's something that, you know, you may or may, you may find out that you don't want to do after a period of time, you still have a significant investment. So I think your points, your points right on that, uh, taking these classes will give you a better sense of whether or not this is a sport you'd like to really get into. I think a lot of us that grew up in families that hunted and fished really didn't realize how blessed we were as kids growing up because all of this stuff that's an expense was, you know, your clothing, it was all hand-me-down stuff until you decided this was what you really wanted to do and cut enough lawns to buy your own jacket or whatever and, you know, dad's old gun or whatever. And, like, you kind of, if you grew up with that, you lose sight of the fact that the person that's, 25 or 35 and never grew up that with that all of a sudden it wants to hunt doesn't have that resource to draw on is it is literally starting from ground zero and i i i know the first time i ever realized that when i was talking to somebody about you know going deer hunting and what it entailed like i finally realized that like wow this is this is like if, if somebody took away everything i already knew and everything i already had and then all of a sudden I wanted to go hunt deer, it would be a totally different experience than growing up in a family where every male and quite a few females for that matter were hunters. Um, you know, schools were closed for the first day of deer season where I grew up. They still are. Um, and, and realizing that that's just not, that's not maybe normal anymore. I, to me, I guess I always just looked at that as, as a kid and thought this is how everybody grows up. And it, it just isn't. Yeah, I, I think we've. I think the data shows that that unfortunately, in this fast-paced you know world that we live in, uh, a lot of it has not been passed down to the next generation. Not just equipment, but of course the knowledge, and more importantly, the passion for the outdoor lifestyle. Uh, we're in a very, very high-paced video game internet world, and you know, and it's fine. It has its place, but unfortunately, parents are so busy now that uh, a lot of the hunting and fishing traditions have sort of have gone by the wayside. You know, our goal, of course, is is to help the, the guy that hunts today or girl that hunts today to do well, to do better, but also to reintroduce folks who might have done it when they were a kid 
uh, and would like to get back into it. And, you know, they build memories. We have a lot of uh, parents, you know, bringing their kids to the classes, and, you know, they're learning these things together, so map and compass and edible plants and so forth. So it's really become kind of a family uh, reintroduction of the old family values, you know, as it relates to, you know, a passion for the outdoors. And, you know, adults are seeing that this is a shortcut to get back into it and to really understand, you know, how does, how does a deer work? And, you know, could me and my you know, son go deer hunting and understand the habits of the whitetail and, and raise our chances of success? That's a, a lot of the reason why the school is here. Well, I think there's a real need for it um, in today's society. I mean, don't you think that we really, in America, because people don't necessarily grow up with these skills being taught father to son anymore, that we've really kind of lost something that made us unique as a nation? Yeah, no no question. Uh, you know, and I think I probably grew up a lot like you did. You know, we were in a, in a family of hunters, and... You know, we all enjoyed, you know, putting a, a nice deer steak on the grill and and all of the the value, I guess, that comes with that as a family, building memories in the field and doing those kind of things. You're right. I I think we've lost, uh, not lost completely, but we certainly have have seen a decline in a very very critical cornerstone of our, you know, of our country's heritage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I really like what you're doing there. Can you tell people how they can learn more about your, you know, your uh, your school and maybe some like some of the courses that are going to be coming up soon for people that are in your area? Yeah, we have a full uh, a full course description and cost and location on our website, uh, the nhoutdoorlearning.com, and the certified master outdoorsman as well as the guide school is all on there. Uh, had some good classes coming up this summer, so we're we're very excited. We've got uh, a lot of folks, you know, signing up that uh, are being reintroduced, I guess, into the outdoors, which is a lot of fun for us. Yeah, I uh, I think that's awesome, man. So uh, again, folks, you can go to the website. It's uh, nhoutdoorlearning.com, and uh, I'm sure that if you have any questions, Scott would be happy to answer them for you. And, uh, Scott, I appreciate you being here with us today on the Survival Podcast. Yeah, we really appreciate you having us on, and uh, hope to uh, hope to hear from you again soon. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Scott Jackson, helping you figure out how to live that better, better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Shut 